We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis, James Fegan, and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, March 4th, 2024. We are inching closer to opening day, and now we've gotten a chance to see more of the White Sox starting pitchers. Early results? They've been good. Nice first impression from Eric Fetty. Michael Kobeck struck out five against the Cubs. And Dylan Cease is feeling the best he's ever felt at spring training. He also thinks that many people are sleeping on the White Sox in 2024. Are we? We'll discuss that on the White Sox spring training results later in the show. Plus, did Scott Boris overplay his hand with his client, Matt Chapman, who signs for just a three-year, $54 million deal with the San Francisco Giants. Oh, and there's another update regarding the White Sox South Loop pursuits as Governor J.B. Pritzker opines about the proposal. And now it seems that the White Sox will have to make this a group project for any chance of getting taxpayer money. Joining us to start the show is one of us, a diehard White Sox fan, but his day job is covering Illinois politics. Welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast for the first time. It's Brendan Moore. And Brendan, thanks for joining the show. Happy to be on, Josh. Uh, what do they say? Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I've had a feeling for a while that our paths would eventually cross as the White Sox be looking to build a new stadium with the current arrangement with the Illinois Sports Facility Authority expiring in 2029. And you have tremendous insight in what is happening down in Springfield. On February 28th, Governor J.B. Pritzker, and you were able to get video of this and you posted it online on Twitter, uh, was asked about the White Sox South Loop proposal and he remained skeptical of providing the taxpayer dollars to get a deal done. Brendan, what are you hearing about this proposal down in Springfield? Is there any support to provide taxpayer funds? Well, Josh, as they say, it's early innings. It's only uh, February. Uh, we just heard about this proposal just last month, so it's still very new. And I think a lot of Folks are still digesting the proposal. Uh, many uh, rank and file lawmakers have not been have not been briefed on it yet. Um, some of the legislative leaders have, the governor staff has, but 
uh, in general, I think there is uh, the word the governor used last week was uh, reluctance. Uh, he's reluctant to give public money uh, for another stadium to be used by a privately owned team. I think that, uh, I mean, things can happen and move quickly in Springfield, but, uh, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done on the White Sox, White Sox's part, uh, related Midwest's part to convince lawmakers that this is a good investment. And quite frankly, I think the bars are going to be higher than it has been in the past. Uh, the governor said that the White Sox, uh, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf is going to have to prove that there is a good return on investment for taxpayers for them to have public money. And there, there's going to need to be more than, than what's been shown so far. Yeah, that's a good point that you make, because for the longest of time, well, actually forever, we never got insight in what MLB teams books really were. The Players Association would love to know. It helped, especially with CBA negotiations. Jerry Reinsdorf's argument is that he can't keep up with other MLB teams because they're in Bridgeport, which as a Bridgeport resident is a slap in the face. However, the Braves are now publicly owned. You could buy shares of the Atlanta Braves and their annual report came out on February 28th. The baseball revenue generated $582 million and the mixed development around their new stadium complex was 59 million. And I have to admit, Brendan, even if the White Sox won 105 games in 2024, they are not coming close to those numbers unless they double or triple their prices at Guarantee Ray Field. And they just don't have the mixed-use development by the stadium currently. However, I say all these great things for the Braves, and it's great things for that public company, but Cobb County is still on the hook for about $15 million a year. So the public's still financing what is generating more than half a billion dollars in revenue. What level or scale are you hearing would convince Illinois politicians that this would be a good return on investment? Like what avenues is the state looking for in a possible South Loop project? I still think it's very early to, I don't think numbers have really been been discussed yet, but uh, I think it's just the general premise that, uh, as you said, Josh, that taxpayers should not be left on the hook for uh, a development that is going to, quite frankly, going to enrich those developers, whether it is Jerry Reinsdorf or related Midwest. I don't think it's clear yet what um, if Reinsdorf will have a stake in the surrounding development and if he can use that to put it back into the team like the Braves have and others have. Um, but uh, I, I think that uh, in general, as we've seen you know, the past 30 years or so, uh, these bonds have been backed by bonds that were used to build guaranteed right field and later renovate soldier field, uh, were backed by, by this, uh, 2% hotel tax. Uh, but obviously there are some years where hotel tax did not, uh, generate enough and the taxpayers were left, uh, holding the bag to, 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 uh, I guess, uh, cover the, uh, whatever wasn't covered by the hotel tax. And and I believe it's five million a year each from the state and from uh, the city of Chicago as well. That's already baked in that they have to contribute. Uh, so I think it would have to look like it would have to be a different arrangement than that. Uh, I think Reinsdorf has thrown out that type of idea with that special sales tax district that would be used uh, to again as a backup if the if the hotel revenue uh, doesn't doesn't uh, meet the bond payments. But even then, that's public money and. I think that there's a general skepticism uh, among legislators uh, who, you know, want to have have priorities and they want to spend money on other things that will help their constituents. And 
Uh, I think that uh, there's just, again, a general uh, reluctance to uh, help out a billionaire who, you know, I think still has to answer the question of, I mean, obviously there'd be, it'd be great if they went to the South Loop and the development sounds great and the renderings are great, but uh, that's still not necessarily, uh, doesn't necessarily make the case for why taxpayers should should be, you know, asked to contribute to this project. Um, you know, why can't it, you know, be privately funded? Uh, so I think there's a lot of questions that still have to be answered and, uh, you know, they're, they have a lot of work to do uh, here in Springfield. So the very next day, so February 28th, Pritzker speaks. On Leap Day, February 29th, a lot of Ozinga concrete trucks are down at 400 North Lakeshore Drive. And they're starting to pour concrete in what is known as a spire. So podcast listeners if in Chicago, if you remember, this is that hole in the ground for the last 15 years uh, that was just overgrown with vegetation for a while. Well, that skyscraper project is now underway and it's set to be completed by 2027. 72 stories tall, providing luxury apartments, which 20% will be affordable. And you know who's developing that project? Related Midwest. And they got $500 million in private construction financing for this new tower and also building a new public park, Brendan. So help me understand in our podcast listeners, all that I see with the Related Midwest in that Spire project for public assistance is that they're working with the Illinois Housing Development Authority to help out with the financing for the project. But most of the support, private financing is coming from Wells Fargo. If Related Midwest could count on private funding for this project, what makes Project 78 in the South Loop different in the eyes of the politicians that they would consider public funding? Or do you see some politicians using what is happening now at 400 Lakeshore Drive against Related Midwest and their counter arguments saying, hey, if you got private financing for this project, why can't you get private financing for the South Loop? Right. I mean, I think it's a very fair point. The... Uh, uh... I think that the, I guess the question would be, uh, I mean, this, the 78 has been vacant for a long time, but uh, the, the premise of, of public funding is it would be a catalyst for uh, opening up billions in private development dollars that would go to the surrounding development. Um, but it, that, that, that premise I think is a little faulty because it's assuming that nothing else is going to be built there if the socks don't go there or before that it was the, uh, the casino project, uh, something's going to be built there eventually. And I think the question is what, you know, what is it going to be? Is it going to be more residential? Is it going to be, you know, office space? Obviously there's been, uh, vacancy rates in the loop right now are pretty high for office space. So maybe, you know, slightly different. But I think the general idea is that, I mean, that is such a prime piece of piece of real estate close to downtown Chicago. It's going to be developed by, by uh, something is going to be there. Related Midwest is going to build something. And, you know, they have shown an ability, as as you said, to, to get that private financing for other projects. And they probably can do so again. And and again, there are other tax incentives they can use, like they, they worked with the, the Housing Development Authority for that. Or and obviously the TIF is already there to help with infrastructure and you know, even Governor Pritzker has said, well, you know, as a public body, we do help with infrastructure for for, for some of these developments. And so that's on the table. But uh, the but yeah, I think that uh, that is why a lot of people are, are skeptical is because they, you know, it, and even even Jerry Reinstorf is a real estate guy. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, he he and I know it's apples and oranges because the United Center is, you know, it was built what 25, 30 years ago. 
Uh, it, it's it's an arena, not a ballpark, but uh, him and, uh, and 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 Bill Wirtz found a way to privately finance that. I, and then obviously, then you have uh, you go up to Wrigley Field. I mean, the Cubs went asking for public money, you know, about ten years ago. The city said no, and what do they do? Well, we're, well we're, I guess we're just going to build it anyways. And you know what? That's worked out pretty good for them. And there is no question about the need for for uh, the amount of money it's going to cost. I mean, it, it'll be you know billion plus dollar development. But again, the question is, does it warrant public dollars to be to be thrown in to to ensure that you know that it happens? Um, which I I think they that's a question they're going to have to answer. And there's a lot a lot of a lot of skeptical people down here, so they're going to have a tough time. This is all going to be much ado about nothing as a Justin Lawrence of Cranes, which we just had on the podcast not that long ago, reported that Illinois Senate President Don Harmon is telling the Chicago Bears and the White Sox to collaborate on a proposal. As Don Harmon told Cranes, quote, I'm not planning to referee fights between billion-dollar sports franchises. I hope the teams took heed of the governor's expression of reluctance to use tax dollars to subsidize new stadiums, end quote. So is this public financing pursuit by the White Sox and related Midwest dead now with them happy to work with the Chicago Bears? And, and I joke, but seriously, Brendan, the Bears owe like $384 million in open bonds in Soldier Field. They bought all that land in Arlington Heights. Like, I compare it to being in college and having to do a group project with the guy that shows up to class once a month from the White Sox perspective. And the other guys, the Bears, like there's so much going against the Chicago Bears in public financing for a new stadium in Lake on the Lakeshore that I just can't imagine them being a good partner for the White Sox and getting that type of public pursuit. So is it, what do you think about that? As far as the two having to work together, is that going to make things easier? Or is it just going to make e- things easier for Springfield to say no to both the White Sox and the bears? So it didn't surprise me to, to see that reporting because legislators don't like to deal with things piecemeal. If they can do something all together, they will, and they'll put it into what they call an omnibus bill, or I guess a Christmas tree bill, where you can deal with a lot of a lot of things uh, all at once. Um, so th- they were never going to do the bears and then do the socks uh, separately. Like it would, it would all have to be, you know, included in together. And obviously now we're hearing maybe the Red Stars want some money, and maybe the Cubs for some exterior security improvements. So if there is a stadium bill, it will be all together. And so I guess they're basically saying to the Sox and the Bears and anybody else, uh, play nice in the sandbox, work together. Um, because if you guys are working <laughs> against each other, that's not that's not the way to get something out of out of Springfield. Um, now it, it could it could help them in a way. I mean, it could perhaps you know they can latch on to something. You know, if there are folks that really want to help the Bears whether it is helping in Arlington Heights or to redevelop the South lot right by Soldier Field. Um, maybe the Sox get something out of that too. But also there are some pitfalls to that uh, because obviously when you try to satisfy all the different interest groups, um, if one person's not not happy, then it can collapse. I mean, I kind of compare it to, again, a little bit apples and oranges, but um, when the, uh, uh, we didn't have gaming expansion for a long time in, in Illinois. Uh, and it really it didn't happen in 2019 eventually because they wanted to fund a capital bill and they used, you know, and they said, okay, well, we'll add six new casinos and we'll uh, do sports betting and we'll add video gaming, more video gaming to bars and restaurants, et cetera. 
but for years it didn't happen because you know either the casinos weren't happy or the the racetracks weren't happy or you know some type of there was always something that 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 threw a wrench in it and and, and prevented it from happening and you see that a lot here in the capital and i think there that could happen this time as well where you know maybe the the socks are happy but the bears aren't or vice versa um or there's some type of you know one of the interest groups down here doesn't uh like an aspect to it so you know it's like you're it's a lot of moving parts it's going to be a lot of moving parts and you know and again it's an election year so that, that may make lawmakers that alone might make lawmakers reluctant to take anything on like this so um i think you know it was probably the only way forward um i'm not saying that it it'll you know means like something will definitely happen but Yeah, I mean, it, with the bears asking for money, with with or at least for for tax help, um, special tip, just or whatever it is, and 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 maybe maybe some hotel tax money, and the socks asking for neither of them were gonna get it alone. So, you know, I guess it opens a path, but again, it's a pretty narrow path. Got it. Is there any chance the state says no to the White Sox and the Bears, but the city of Chicago says yes to public funding? I I. I think that's very hard um, because they, the 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 hotel tax. I mean, if they go that route, that that would have to be done by the state legislature. Um, even though it is hotel tax that's only paid by city of Chicago, um, so that that would need state approval for that. Uh, the city, I mean, you you have the TIF district, uh, which again can be used for infrastructure, um, and and you know, and obviously when you add the infrastructure. costs it, many believe this will be upwards of close to two billion dollars more than the billion dollars that that's been the big number so the city can help in that aspect but i you know and i'm, and I'm not an expert on city government and politics but everybody knows that, that the city's finances are probably in or shape in the states and i i just don't think that 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 would be something that would be high on the priority list especially with the new mayor mayor johnson um even though he has, you know, been optimistic, maybe more optimistic than Governor Pritzker about this project. You know, he got elected uh, hoping to help, I guess, you know, working people and, and and you know, to um, and, and, and he kind of railed against these types of deals uh, where developers get, you know, taxpayer dollars. So I think it'd be very hard. But um, again, anything can happen uh, either, you know, in Chicago or, or in Springfield. Uh, you never completely close the door. So if we hear anything new coming forward, it's probably some type of agreed proposal between Jerry Reinsdorf and the McCaskies, right? That that seems to be the best path for both teams. It'll it'll have to be negotiated. Uh, and and I think that in the way things work down here, oftentimes on these big proposals is you're not going to see a lot of public hearings. You're not going to see like something gets proposed like in March or April when you have a lot of time to vet it. This will get dropped at the very end of legislative session, like a few days before they're supposed to adjourn. Um, it'll feel very rushed. Um, there will probably still be negotiations happening behind the scenes. Uh, obviously, the Bears would be involved, the White Sox, and then all the various interest groups. Um, I mean, obviously, the the hotel association will be involved because it's their tax that that that's going to be used here. Um, you know, your labor is going to be involved because you know the, this is these are going to be ginormous projects, and they're going to want to make sure that you know 
you have project labor agreements and that's union work on everything. Uh, you know, you, you're going to have a lot of people at the table. And, uh, and again, even if you get an agreement among those parties, you have to find, I mean, there are three numbers that are the most important numbers in Springfield, 60, 31. You need 60 votes in the House, 30 in the Senate, and you need the governor's signature. If you don't have one of those, then you're done. And I think that that's going to be a very tough climb for them because there's a lot of skepticism among among the rank and file. Again, a lot of them haven't been been uh, vetted or, or have have been briefed yet. But um, I think it's the general premise that turns off a lot of, a lot of folks. So um, they're going to have to figure out. Uh, they're going to have to, to to whip some votes, and uh, you know they're going to have to beef up their lobbying, and uh, they'll have some time to do it. Though I mean, we have well, I guess it's a couple months now, two and a half months. It'll be it'll be interesting to watch. So the session ends on May 24th, the current one, correct? Supposedly. Uh, it, <laughs> te- te- you know, technically May 31st is, is the deadline everybody uses because after May 31st, anything that uh, it's called overtime uh, and anything after that that gets passed with an immediate effective date would require a supermajority. So it goes up from 60 to 71 in the House, 30 to 36 in the Senate, much higher climb. Um, so most say... May May thirty first is is you know we'll see if they get done May May twenty fourth uh, but I think we're going to be in that last week so okay so if they don't have something on the table by May thirty first when is it possible that the state would even entertain a vote on something like this so if not done this session in you know by the end of May there's veto session in November which is when they come back for two weeks. To take up bills that the governor vetoed or sometimes they'll just take up other bills and there's no restriction uh, but again if they, that were the case it would require a higher vote threshold so that would be very difficult um but they could come back in january before so again the election happens in in, in november um they get sworn in for their new terms uh in early january but before they get sworn in, they can come back for what's called lame duck session, where you still have the legislators from the previous session uh, before the new ones get sworn in. And sometimes that's when things can really happen because you have a lot of legislators that are retiring that are not going to have to face voters again. Um, and the threshold goes back down to just simple majorities. So that might be maybe a more realistic time frame because it gives some of the the groups time to negotiate. It gives them time to talk it out. Uh, I know the Bears have said, you know, Kevin Warren has said he wants some resolution on what they want to do by the end of the year. Um, so I think that might still work with their time frame. Um, and obviously, the Sox have a few years to figure out what they want to do, given the lease is up in I think in twenty nine. So, um, so lame duck session in early January might be one to watch. Um, again, no no guarantees, but uh, it might be. A time where again it's after the election you know there's a lot of folks that won't face voters again things can happen during those times where you know it's it's kind of in that in between all right so i got that circled folks white podcast listeners <laughs> end of may or january 2025 so we'll see what the white Sox and bears come up with and i'm sure we'll talk about that the next time that they have a proposal and of course we'll have brendan back on the show as well to break it down as far as what that aspect is down in springfield follow brendan on twitter folks because he does an excellent job of reporting on illinois politics down in springfield he's at brendan moore the number 13 and brendan Like I mentioned, I'm sure we'll talk again very soon when there's a new development 
Thanks for coming on the Sox Machine Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Josh. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast, and it's time to bring James Fegan and Jim Margulis into the fold. Welcome, gents. More spring training action to discuss for the White Sox, especially on the starting pitching front, as we got a chance to see Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech and Eric Fetty on the mound making their first appearances in spring training. And James, I'll start with you. Dylan Cease looked pretty good for his first outing. Two innings, allowed two hits, walked one with only one strikeout. But he feels like he's in the, the best shape that he's ever been in for any spring training in his professional career as he tries to get ready to go for the upcoming season and also continues to try to avoid trade talks. Uh, what were your feelings about Cease's first appearance? And when you got a chance to talk to him when you were in Arizona, did you get the impression that he did feel like he was at his best coming into this camp? Uh, he's throwing harder early in camp than he was last year. Um <laughs> I would really recommend that he throws harder in, in all in all opportunities that present themselves to him. Uh, I think it bodes well. Um, even his changeup would probably be thrown harder. So uh, there's there's nothing that doesn't just benefit from him being healthy. He said that basically he didn't have soreness going into the soft season that needed to be dealt with, and that affected his training regimen in some way. That there wasn't some period right after the season end that was just dealt with. Um, 
dealing with some sort of nagging issue or triceps was one of the things he mentions that he's dealt with in the past. So that is supposed to be part and parcel with uh, him coming in stronger and feeling better coming in. Um, I imagine not having to like work deep into a playoff run uh, helps him be fresh uh, and part of it. The one time I talked to him on the phone before spring training started, he, he was said he was just coming out of like an hour long massage. So I don't know what about his training regimen. Like, was there longer massages required when he was more banged up? But uh, it still seems like a healthy amount for the average person. But it, physically, it seems like the one thing that was maybe holding him back last year was just, you know, you took away two miles from everything, including a slider, and you had depreciating levels of chasing. So him just being healthy and throwing harder. Sometimes it's a simple game, and may- maybe that's why he'll win the Cy Young this year and be torn about what cap to wear while, while accepting it. <laughs> now I'm curious of what kind of massage treatment Dylan ceases. Is he just a is he just basic with the Swedish massage, or does he really need them to like get all the knots out of the back? And for those that have ever done the massage, especially if you ever take it a cruise, they they trying to talk you into going to the spa room to get the massages. He could be a salt stone guy or the heated rocks along the spine. Maybe it's all above Jim. Do you have a mall chair? Do you, do you have a massage preference, Jim? <laughs> mall chair. <laughs> I, my wife came to the bamboo stick one, one time where they just roll a bamboo stick up your back. That sounds, that doesn't sound fun. That sounds torture. I, I I wasn't prepared for him to say this at all. And so like if you can imagine the conversation with you've watched interviews with Dylan Cease, so you're just like, Yeah, I just got out of a massage. That's so it's pretty sweet. I was like, Sounds good. He's like, Yeah, 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 it was. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we had to just move along at some point. <laughs> On the velocity uptick, Jim, for Dylan Cease, as mm-hmm. as James mentioned, this is something that you pointed out many times when we were doing the shows last year and maybe why Cease wasn't as effective and maybe why he wasn't more in the strike zone last year was that velocity dip. Uh, does this inspire more confidence that we could be closer to seeing the runner-up Cy Young version of Dylan Cease than the version we saw last year? Yeah, to piggyback on James's point, I think the other... Uh, benefit of throwing harder is maybe fastballs that got foul tipped or sliders that got fended off or were laid off because they were a tick slower are now getting past bats, darting below bats, whatever the bat path may be offering for that pitch, like just not there anymore. The timing is off. So it bats are shorter versus having foul balls, extended bats to where like eventually the lack of command or at least like the, the, the real fine point um, mechanical precision that Cease often lacks, you know, comes back to bite him. Like you might be ahead one, two, gets a foul ball, all of a sudden three, two, walk. So, you know, shorter bats in that way, I think are probably as important a component for Cease limiting walks as just like the weird thing he does where it gets overly rotational and starts missing the left-handed batter's box. Like, I think it's just sometimes just a matter of time, like trying to wait Cease out before he uh, walks guys. And, you know, I think a couple years ago in a Cy Young form, batters had a real tension in terms of like, do we attack him early to try to hit hittable pitches while he's in the zone? Or do we take those hittable pitches knowing that like, 
eventually he'll start misfiring and the walks will start piling up and they were just caught in between. So it was really the best of both worlds for Cease and that like sometimes he'd get ahead and then get strikeouts or they would feel pressured and chase pitches that might they might have thought were strikes, but because he's throwing a slider more, all of a sudden just off the off the plate and you know tapping them out or popping them up, what have you. So, I think anything he can do to get into batters' heads more, to feel like they have decisions to make earlier, both you know whether it's the pitch coming at them or just in the count, I think benefits him versus getting into long sloppy counts that uh, can all of a sudden like even if he throws a scoreless inning, he needed 32 pitches to do so, and he's throwing five innings instead of six. Dylan, after that start earlier this week during spring training, said that the White Sox are being slept on. Dylan seems pretty confident in this squad, James, that they're going to be better than the, what the experts think. Do you agree with that? Are, are we sleeping on the 2024 White Sox? I mean, yes, we're sleeping on them, but are we justified in doing so, I think is the... The main question? Yes. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, yeah, that's the, the general vibe in the clubhouse is, uh, you know, we can be better than they think, not like we're going to secretly win the, the World Series or anything like that, but like we're going to play good baseball. We're going to give ourselves a chance. Um, it will be less infuriating or frustrating or feeling like we spurned our talent in previous years. Um <sighs> I feel like scoring runs is going to be a like like when they talk about individual games and the style of the play that they want. Yes, like they if you if you really defend your ass off and and pitch really solidly, you can. There's some satisfaction just being in every game uh, where uh, you know a, a, a bloop or something can change the game in a, in a way in your favor. If you're constantly making it this low scoring game where the margins are slim, you can give yourself as an inferior team a chance. But I think over the course of six months. The not scoring runs thing is really going to be kind of an issue that uh, we probably wind up talking about it great more often than we are in Cactus League. So I, I yes, I, I get their point. I think it's a rallying cry. I think they have this vision where they can pay sharper baseball and thread 500. I think it's probably going to be too narrow of a, you know, a needle to thread. And then, you know, if it really is working well, it probably just further greases the track for the ace pitcher being traded at the deadline, which will probably be hard for them to overcome in the, the same way. So uh, I, I'm, I'm comfortable with where I am, Dylan, though I appreciate your candor. It reminded me a little bit of like the discussions after the, the Keenan Middleton trade and talking about like how pitchers were held to a higher standard or, uh, you know, they had their own policing going on because they had some veterans the rotation in the bullpen versus like the position players and the comments being like oh i can't really talk about them but we had standards which i just took you know in, in the negative space to say like i'm not sure they had standards on that side of the ball or is very inconsistently policed and I, it kind of reminds me of the same thing like I think it's fair for cease to say the rotation is being slept on a little like you know it requires guys hitting their you know, 80th percentile projections in Pakoda like Kopech or, you know, Fetty, but like you can understand the talent. You can understand like, you know, Kopech has shown flashes of being unhittable to, yeah, I guess that's classic spring optimism, but also like there has been evidence of talent and it's nice to see Cease trying to pump up a new addition like Fetty to, you know, get people excited about, you know, a, a new guy who fans might not know about. But uh, when you expand the scope beyond the whole team, it does it bring back the memories of that divide of just like, 
uh, yeah, we're being slept on. Rotation is pretty good. Dot, 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 dot. Anybody? Dot, dot, dot. So that's why, you know, that, that that's what came to mind for that. And, you know, I think if Cease is only talking about like his jurisdiction, sure, you know, I, I can buy some classic um, early season before the games count uh, optimism. But yeah, it's, it's hard to get excited when the run differential looks like it might look like in April when the games start counting. Yeah, I, I guess it depends on the player, right? Dylan C saying this, it, it caught my attention because I don't know if he's going to stay the entire season. I'm expecting him not to stay the entire season with the White Sox. So to say, hey, we're being slept on here, uh, Dylan, I don't even know if you're going to be with the team after Memorial Day weekend, man. Okay, like 4th of July, we'll see if you're still here. Maybe Chris Getz will not budge from his price until the very final day of the trade deadline, which is July 30th this year. But if someone like Andrew Vaughn says this, then I just kind of roll my eyes and we move on. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like the know, position players have a lot to prove, as you pointed out, Jim. Like they're going to have a big factor in how this run differential looks. Yeah, futons are also slept on and they're not that good. <laughs> well, it depends. Depends on the mattress, man. Just like massages. Depends what you pay for. Uh, James, you mentioned Eric Fetty. He looked good against the Angels right-handed batters. Uh, he struck out Mike Trout. I think that with that fastball, is, is he throwing a cutter as well? Is everyone throwing a cut fastball now, James? Are we back to the Don Cooper days? Does everyone in the White Sox starting rotation have a cut fastball? Uh, yeah, special instructor Esteban Loiza has really been working out well with the guys. They're really responding to what he's saying. <laughs> uh, I hadn't talked to Fetty a lot about his uh, disclaimer. Uh, Esteban Loiza was not spotted at Camelback Ranch. Please it's do part not of know. the, the prisoner exchange program, right? The work program. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Fetty has thrown a cutter. That's part of his arsenal. Um, so, yes, you will see it. Uh, he, the, the main thing, the main adjustments, I guess we can't credit credit to, uh, Don Cooper pitching coach emeritus in, in that situation, but, um, kind of the big things is this arsenal is, I guess, embracing a little bit more like East West. So I was talking it over with the scout about, you know, how he looks different in KBO versus, uh, pre, uh, earlier. And it's just like the, he throws the, the slider, harder uh with more uh horizontal action so like it kind of got more sweep as he made it a more 80 85 version and then his change up that he adapted the grip from logan webb now has more horizontal action as well so he's kind of just going more extremely like side to side and a bit more where it like it's kind of he says like it's embracing his natural arm slot but it wasn't really so much that he changes arm slot uh in the traditional way that we think of in terms of all our planar rotation discussions from last week, but he's more just embracing the fact that his arm is a little bit lower. So he wants to work East to West. Um, so I don't know if he's necessarily the mm -hmm. template in the way that they've added cutters to guys like Kopech and, and crochet, who you can see them kind of lose his own, even with their fastball at times and they need something to kind of tether them. But for a narrative sake, if we're just trying to make a listing and using the rule of three, we can try to lump Fetty in there. Well, the reason I ask is because against trout, Watching that at bat, he was able to back up Trout. It wasn't quite a slider. So that's why I was asking, does he have a cutter? And it looked pretty effective busting Trout inside. And then he ultimately gets Trout out 
on the strikeout with the slider. So against righties, I see the formula where Eric Fetty could be very successful. But Jim, against the left-handed bats, this is where I'm going to start having questions on how effective he could be. And I am sure as the season starts that Eric Fetty is going to see a lot of lefty loaded lineups, especially if teams have platoons and specific positions where they could put a lefty bat in the fold because that sweeper, at least against the angels and the camera angle was awful for the spring training broadcast. It was in the left center bleachers pretty much. So it was really hard to tell on how that sweeper and slider for Eric Fetty was trying to get inside and left-handed bats, but it seemed like the lefties for the angels hitters were able to see that pitch longer and they made some pretty good contact against the breaking stuff for Eric Fetty and first impression for Fetty for me, he looks good. And I think he'd be very effective against right-handed batters, which is great. But I'm going to pay attention this year on how he does against lefties because I think lefties can hurt him. Yeah, the camera angle made it hard to like understand how his pitches were moving that weren't obvious sweepers. I would like to see that split change up more, kind of get an understanding of just like how much it tails, how much it like how much uh, you know east-west movement there is versus how much tilt, like how it's supposed to miss bats or what kind of weak contact it's supposed to get. Like with that severe offset to where he had is down, basically down the left field line, um, it really just plays up almost like body English in a way. Like you're kind of like, come on, you know, sweep, you know, you move it, you know, move uh, glove side. And anything going that way is exaggerated or at least very visible to where like anything that is like more moves like a two seamer or even like straight four seamers weren't that impressive. Uh, like Garrett Crochet was just kind of like, yeah, it, they seem kind of flat from that side because it just downplays that angle. Like I, I want to see a more traditional angle or at least get like, um, you know, salt river fields or something like that, where it's uh stat cast data to where like understanding exactly how things are working without any of those. Yeah, it's kind of like, I can see what you're saying. And yeah, if he's throwing a sweeper and it just has a long time to come in and hitters have a long time to look at it. Uh, and like, it's kind of like Kopech with this slider not being that good and having to rely on like a an ordinary at best changeup to try to get lefties out and not really having any success with that and walking a lot of them. There is that possibility, but not knowing him and only like seeing some KBO highlights and understanding what we looked like before the changes, uh, I'm going to be more wait and see in this just to understand how his pitches move because with the way uh, the angles are presented right now, it's really hard to, you you can't scout off that. Michael Kobeck, great against the Cubs, two scoreless innings, five strikeouts. He did walk one batter and he hit one batter. And I think the White Sox, you mentioned this, James, in your writing that the plan is for Michael Kopech to be a starter this upcoming season And if he continues to get results like he did at his first spring training appearance, then yes, I think he'll convince everyone that he can still remain as a starting pitcher. Is the slider the primary secondary pitcher of Michael Kopech? And is that the game plan coming into the season where he's still going to be primarily fastball slider? I mean, that's the goal is for it to take take a step forward in terms of uh, reliability so that these kind of other options he has to turn to well, it's obviously relevant for it to keep him, you know, become less dependent upon it as the season grows on. He's he's certainly flashed plus sliders in the past, so it's kind of the the past of least resistance. I will say, like, he was good. He looked overpowering. His velocity certainly is good. It wasn't the same kind of slow creep from from last spring that you know gave everyone anxiety for him sitting ninety two ninety four until 
pretty much the last start of spring. So that's an improvement. It was still very like, if we saw a snapshot of this game, you know, the two innings and, you know, we simmed to the end and we saw there was six innings and uh, uh, no runs across, it would maybe, and 10 Ks, that would also fit. It would also make sense if it was like six innings and five earned and five walks because, in the context of two innings, there's the one mound visit from Cats, like as things are spiraling out of control, everything's smooth sailing from there. Over the course of five, six innings, you know, 100 pitches, you know, we've definitely seen him kind of spin out or, or get fall out of his delivery and pop out of his mechanics in a way that, um, you know, too much damage accumulates over the course of trapping to kind of reset uh, multiple times. So it was good. It was promising. It was more promising than not. It still had enough of the old problems to make you think like, what ratio is he battling them off at, you know, as, as we expand the sample a bit more. And then Garrett Crochet, Jim, the fastball against the angels blew Mike. He froze Mike Trout. So in this spring training, Garrett Crochet has frozen Shohei Otani and Mike Trout with the fastball. I didn't hear any velocity readings during the Angels broadcast, but to fool Mike Trout on a fastball middle-middle, you fooled him on velocity, and I don't think Trout was expecting that type of velocity to come into the zone. The fastball looks great. The question that I have, what secondary pitch could Garrett Crochet throw over for a strike? Because it's a lot of fastballs during spring training. Yeah, I mean, that's the conversation we've been having since, like, they started floating the idea. Maybe even going back to draft day uh, and talking about, like, whether he could start. Like, it's been persistent and, uh, you know, spring training, I think, is not a great place to showcase a better break mold. We saw some sliders, I think more of them early on in his first start to where like he made some mistakes on them. They were, uh, they did the most damage on him. Like he couldn't find the classic, like down and away breaking ball to lefties. He's leaving them out over the plate. He was leaving them, uh, over the inner half or off the plate inside, like wasn't quite finishing that pitch. So we've seen like the inconsistent release point that when he didn't have his best velocity, he was just a hard guy to hit, but he also wasn't overpowering. Like he was an okay major league reliever, but not anybody you'd feel like locking up long-term or you know, spending a first round draft pick on. So I think you know, the breaking ball is, you know, has been a question. I think the fastball, that's kind of like priority one to me is, is his velocity back? Because I think kind of like, discussing with Cease. That kind of sets the agenda for everything else he can do. It makes uh, the margin for error a lot greater with his secondary pitches, be they be okay backup sliders or a changeup that's kind of looks like a slow fastball. Uh, there, there's a lot more he can do when he's throwing 98, 99, 100 versus like sitting averaging 96, not really being able to, to, to break through that. So I'm comfortable where he is the velocity right now to be like, okay, there's a good pitcher here. Now it's just a matter of like, yeah, can he actually face hitters more than once through a lineup and offer them something different, you know, once they get used to that velocity coming from that arm slot and extension. So yeah, there are questions, but I think like until he starts throwing like more than two innings in a spring outing and we'll see like how long they stretch him to. And if they never stretch him past like two innings, I think that might answer your questions in terms of like, oh, the White Sox just want a multi-inning reliever and this is all just 
a way to phrase his preparation and, you know, keep him engaged in the season. But ultimately, everybody sees somebody who they don't want to throw more than 50 pitches. But if he does start throwing three, four innings and like, you know, going into 60 pitches, then I think we'll have a better idea of like what he's actually comfortable throwing. And if hitters are giving him a reason to be uncomfortable throwing pitches that he actually needs to throw. I mean, that, that's a good point that Jim made, James, about how does he look over three to four innings with the secondary stuff in the group chat for the Sox Machine Veterans Committee, which if you guys would like to be a part of, you could reach out to us at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. Uh, you mentioned that Gary Crochet looks to be back, at least with the fastball. Do you agree about the secondary pitches? And if he doesn't have a secondary pitch, is this still good enough to be a high leverage reliever type of profile? Because if he's throwing 98 and 100 miles an hour, I'm going to keep bringing this up. The White Sox don't have a lot of options right now in high leverage. And I know Garrett Crochet would love to be stretched out to a starter, but closers still make a lot of money, man. And if he's throwing this type of heat, I, there's still that backup plan that maybe he could still be the White Sox closer this season. Yeah, I think it'd be fine on on in high leverage. I think the the number of sliders you have to learn to land on a, in a given like single inning outing uh, it goes down, and the, the I think the burden for consistency uh, goes down a lot. And you're asking him to kind of maintain his command or maintain his sharpness after getting up and or sitting down and getting back up a, a lot less off. I, I I'd be fine with it. I I think. I think more than a few slight, or I mean, I, I think Liam Hendricks would say this. Not that he's at Liam Hendricks' level fastball, but like I, I don't think he'd really regard his slider and curveball as like truly great pitches. Like they're not super spinning or anything like that. It's more like he doesn't even regard them as things that he can throw in the zone. It's merely like if I set the tone of the fastball, I just need to put it in the chase location and I'll be kind of fine. So. I wouldn't say I think there's a bit more potential in crochet slider against, especially against lefties, uh, than that. But I, I think the the burden for being consistent or even where you have to think about hitting with rather than grabbing strikes, it's more about just throwing good chase pitches uh, in a single inning format. That I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I'd be pretty confident with them there if the velocity's back. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like Matt Thornton for a new generation, like. Big fastball slider, that's okay, hmm. but the fastball just puts constant pressure to be on time. And then once they start looking for that, like you can mix it up a little bit. But I know that'll send shutters down the fan uh, the spines of some fans because they didn't trust him in high leverage. Uh, Juan Pierre basically ruined his uh, possible career as a closer, and I'll, and I'll take that to my grave. But um, it, it's a case of just the same arsenal. You know, Matt Thornton was very, very good for a, a very long time, uh, for especially for somebody like a late bloomer who wasn't like a regular until his late 20s. You know, he had a really good career. So if uh, Crochet never does more than that, and basically like next-gen Matt Thornton just throws like two miles per hour harder, like, you know, Thornton kind of sat – 95 to 97 and that was really impressive and now if crochet is hitting like 97 99 hitting 100 and then that gets him to where he needs to be at, at this day and age i don't have the exact numbers in front of me but i feel like every two strike slider matt and thor never threw for a strike was a strikeout looking automatically because like just he the, the everyone was just sitting fastball with him so much that like it lowered the 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 burden on the slider so dramatically well, I mean, that seems tragic work for crochet if he's a high leverage reliever it's just it's very early in spring training i'm just not seeing a lot of breaking pitches 
in the zone for strikes for Garrett Crochet. Like right now, the highlights of him are just overpowering opposing hitters with the fastball. And that's great to see because we did not see that type of fastball velocity last year, obviously coming off of Tommy John. But I think that played a huge part in why he had 13 walks and 12 strikeouts last year. So he didn't even have command of the fastball. If he's got that overpowering fastball and he can command it, that's a very, very useful pitcher for the White Sox, especially in the bullpen, a bullpen that every single time we do a podcast, James has bad news for us that somebody else is dying or they're not going to make it to the opening day because they're already hurt. Uh, I don't think we have any reports for this episode, but it, it gives me more confidence in crochet. I was really wishy-washy. I was really concerned coming to the spring training because he just did not look good at all in 2023 and not everyone bounces back from Tommy John, but what we've seen from crochet early, we'll see if the white Sox continue stretching him out to a starter, but this Garrett crochet looks really good. And the white Sox could definitely use him in the bullpen on the position player side. It's not so much any of the position players that we'll talk about. I did forget about this to put in the rundown, but I want to chat with you guys about what Pedro Grafal had to say about the second batter in the lineup as uh, Yohan Makata has a desire to bat second, Jim. And you wrote about this on SoxMachine.com about the quote from Pedro Grafal. Grafal said, quote, that's a selfless spot in the order. You have to give yourself up. Not a lot, but some. You have to take pitches, move guys over. You might have to bunt, hit and run. And he's all in on that, end quote. Uh, And then you pointed out the fun facts. Fun fact one, the White Sox had the least productive second spot in baseball last year. And they did not have a single sack bunt from the second spot last year. So, uh, Jim, what the hell is Pedro Grafal talking about? I don't know. Like, basically, my <laughs> response to that would be like, no, you don't. No, you won't. Like, just simple. You know, the longer you try to uh, engage with it, the more he's winning. Just because, like, it's just a bad <laughs> argument. You're not You're supposed to reject it on its merits. But, no, there's just a, you know, when it comes to him talking, it's hard to like put any stake in it. Cause it just seems like he's saying stuff he wants to say, but it doesn't match up with things he's done or how things went last year. And I know that, you know, he talked to James about like uh, the, the, the windshield analogy and how like he is really trying to minimize any kind of talk aside from like occasionally glancing uh, at a lesson he learned from the previous year. So not forgetting entirely, but also just not letting it get in the way of, uh, you know, glorious days ahead or whatever he you know, wants to see it as. But there's just like a lack of, you know, when he's that um, disconnected from his body, when his body of work is so bad that you want to disconnect from it, uh, just with the White, White Sox losing 101 games, and then, like, he's saying stuff that he doesn't actually do. There's just a lack of, like, you know, object permanence in a way of just, you know, he's just saying things. Do they matter? No, it's just something to say until the next day. And then he just might say something different, kind of like with Michael Kopech saying they're not going to move him to the bullpen, and then they move him to the bullpen. Tim Anderson, haven't even thought of moving him down. Then two days later, they move him down. Like, it just, there's no reason to buy into what he's saying because he's just saying stuff to get through the day and that seems like basically how he's gone and then like once Chris Getz took over and he started like flattering Chris Getz it just became like what keeps me employed and and so if you approach every day like that it's really hard to come with like a cohesive approach to where like you can 
you know, look up what somebody said, look up the way he's applied standards ac across the board. Uh, his standards have been very uneven, uh, like Rick Renteria. Like he's a guy I think who had fairly even standards uh, when it came to effort. And I think he over-policed it at times and then had to reel it back once the team started winning and realized he didn't have to be like a helicopter parent for the roster. But like he had a fairly even application, fairly even demeanor, fairly consistent messaging across the years. And ultimately you could believe what he was saying, even if he didn't like what he's saying, it's like, at least it's a philosophy and there are, if you have a philosophy, at least there's like some scientific method you can apply to where like, okay, let's swap out a variable then and see if that makes a difference. And maybe I'm doing something wrong, but like, there's just no comprehensive ethos. I think that Griffol has the one he had was like, you know, we're going to prepare every night to kick your ass. That was like his mission statement. And then that blew up in his face. And ever since then, it's been scrambling for something that sounds good to answer that day's question. But when you look at, you know, whether it's you look at the past week of work or the past month of work, it's like well, there's no evidence that that showed up. Uh, he's not saying anything different. He's still just talking about effort and how uh, st their standards are higher and things are going to change and never change. And so like, that's why I think a lot of people have tuned Griffol out because like, what's the point of listening if what he's saying is like, well, that's not true. And, and you can just kind of reject it out of hand and you're not wrong for doing so. I did enjoy this comment in that post in Sox Machine in the comment section. Folklore, another one of our VC supporters, uh, he pointed out the final eight teams in the playoff last year and their number two hitters, Adley Rushman, Corey Seager, Alex Bregman, Jorge Polanco, Freddie Freeman, Quetzal Marte, Ozzie Albies, and Trey Turner. Like the best teams still bat their best bats <laughs> second overall in the lineup. Oh, man, I just don't want to see James a opening day lineup because if Pedro Griffol truly believes in playing small ball and going old school to number two hitter, that uh, Nicky Lopez gets those at bats over Yohan Makata batting second. Like, I like the idea still of Makata batting second if he is healthy and he is feeling confident. I'm just hoping that we don't walk backwards, if that makes sense, when it comes to the White Sox lineup. He is uh, very motivated to talk up his guys, and he's also very motivated to try to push back against Yon Moncada stereotypes. So he tries always defining him as playing through pain, that he's playing hurt, that he's a grinder, that he's working hard. It's, and so I feel like this is in parcel with this of trying to pose like Mankata is signing up for this unselfish role where he'll be doing all the things and sacrificing himself for the team. But he just tends to overstate it in a way that undermines his credibility where it's like, well, that's clearly embellished. Now I need to like call on the question, like everything about this. And yeah, it makes even me think like, well, what is he trying to get across by talking at Mankata in this way? I, I feel like it's almost like, trying to goad Mankata into fulfilling these principles that he says he has, uh, so to speak. But it just it just comes off very strange. It, like, it, it's not just Mankata. It's not just his players. He just tries – he tends to overstate his point by more than half – more than half of the time. It, it's I don't know how to get him to stop. I don't know how to say, like, you don't need to, like, hit this hard on this. <laughs> like, you know, we get it. Uh, or, you know, we can – we can kind of write the rest for you in a sense of like, just indicate your support of this player and we'll write that you don't need to like kind of 
make the soaring narrative on your own, but it's, I think it's, he's a, it's something where you can see his effort level a lot when he's doing it. And it doesn't, and just because of the nature of, you know, giving comments that come off as genuine and candid, the effort level being that visible really kind of undercuts the, uh, the product. A little bit of eyewash, but uh, like with Mankata, like it seemed like he got around to like a legitimate um, point against like, you know, a coronation for anybody in the second spot, like Mankata saying like, well, we want to have that top part of the lineup reliable. We want to have it like, you know, our, our best hitters who are there every day. And like for a guy like Mankata, whose ability to get the bat through the zone varies like series to series based on how he's feeling. And, you know, whether his oblique or whether his you know, lower body is cooperating, like, I think there is a little bit of like, you know, uh, motivation or accountability to make sure like, Hey, how are you feeling? Are you able to deliver, uh, with, you know, 95% today, 90%, like a good, accurate representation of how he's feeling just to know, like if he's going to be dynamic in that spot versus like dragging the bat through the zone, settling for opposite field singles and walks. Uh, and so like, if you made the point that way saying like, yeah, I'd love to have him hitting second. Just want to make sure that he's good for hitting second, you know, every week versus like, you know, having, you know, these, uh, these moments. And then he just, you know, can't quite maintain that level of, uh, you know, not effort. Cause, cause I think that'd be slagging, but just like dynamism or something like that, where he's just like actually able to make the actions with the, uh, quickness that at his best, he can do very well, uh, versus when everything's lagging. So there was like a point but it was just uh, like larded with a, like a preamble that uh, set you back to 1974 and then ultimately didn't resolve the question any kind of um, way that satisfied anybody. It's kind of like, you know, in a vacuum, the my erratic but most highly paid player just asking me for the number two spot where the best pitter in the order goes in early March. And I said, OK, would be bad because that's not the <laughs> level of like meritocracy you seek. So he went to counter that, went and swung it to the other side of the pole where it's now like, God, he's just sacrificing himself to be in this number two spot. Like, it's almost like he's hopping on a grenade. And it just, I, I understand why he's trying to like not make it look selfish or, um, you know, like it's just handing something to him based off reputation. But uh, then it just became a, a, a weird thing for us to interpret another way from how much he, you know, try to talk it up as this, this positive sign as possibly. And then finally, real quick, Matt Chapman signs a unique contract to the San Francisco Giants. And it's a one-year deal in which he'll make $18 million in 2024. And it comes with a $2 million signing bonus. There is a $17 million player option for the 2025 season or... The player option, if he buys out, he gets $2 million from the San Francisco Giants. So he's not here for a long time with the San Francisco Giants. And James, the contracts that we're seeing from the final Boris Four, it feels like they're going to be free agents again next year. So we're going to have to deal with this. Uh, what Cody Bellinger signed with the Cubs. Maybe Bellinger stays for an extra year with the Cubs because of the way that it's set up as far as pay. But Matt Chapman probably will test free agency next year. And we're still waiting for Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery to sign. And here we are in March and they're still free agents. 
Do you think Scott Boris overplayed his hand in negotiations for these four particular players because they were regarded as the four best free agents available for Scott Boris this offseason? Uh, and especially in light with Shohei Otani and Yamamoto signing much earlier in the offseason. I think there, I mean, not to say that every free agent isn't flawed in some deep existential way, but there was like a, so four weird guys. It's, you know, Bellinger, who's obviously been bad for two years and now has like none of his quality of contact backs up what his stats were. Snell being, uh, you know, walk addled and, and not being able to get you deep. Chapman being like sub 700 OPS after April and, and really not really being the same guy offensively much since, uh, you know, his, his big, what was it hip injury that he had that took him out that he had to get fused. And then Jordan Montgomery, who's someone who's very much like is a mid rotation guy, but is trying to bank off being, you know, a playoff hero, kind of a top rotation uh, guy for a world series. Winner. It all seemed like guys who were really kind of keyed up to maybe underperform, what their you know popular value would be based on how teams would actually evaluate them. Uh, so it is a little weird. Uh, it, it always maybe seemed like it wasn't going to benefit from the same you know style that he uses. I would say that he's had a really long career. He's been doing this for a very long time. I think the in aggregate numbers are going to show that you know he's going to probably make out pretty well with his approach way more often than not. Um, Last time I saw him, his fleeces still look really expensive. So I, I think he's, it's, I think it's still working out, but it, it definitely didn't seem like it was a combination of what seemed like a very slow market throughout. And also just like four guys in the profile where I'd be kind of like, I'm trying to imagine like covering the White Sox signing any of these guys. And I feel like it'd be like anxiety all over the place, especially with Chapman with how he looked post April um, or investing in Dellinger right now uh, with, with, you know, Hey, they're, Finally got a top of the market slugger and it's somebody who had a 25% exit velocity. I, I feel like all of them would be giving us the heebie-jeebies in some way. And I feel like that played out league wide. I, I still had though Jordan Montgomery in my offseason plan project, Jim, like that would be great. Like, why not? Why not the white Sox sign Jordan Montgomery uh, and to a one-year contract? I mean, at this point, that's kind of just how I feel. Like if nobody wants Blake Snell or Jordan Montgomery, you know, Jerry, shock us. All right. I know you're busy trying to get a new stadium in the South Loop, but it just shocked the world and, and pull an Albert Bell move and sign both of these guys to, to one year contracts and, and see what happens. You could trade him at the deadline if it doesn't work out. Yeah, I guess you, they gained a draft pick in the Mariners trade so they can lose afford to lose a draft pick and still maintain some of their capital there, but yeah, it's, um, I think a couple other, you know, teams that would normally be good for spending or pressing the spending, like the Padres aren't that team right now with just, you know, with Peter Seidler passing and the way they just weren't able to capitalize on what looked like a really good roster. They're reshaping a little bit, so they're not quite what they used to be kind of like in the post-Illich or post-Mike-Illich uh, Tigers, I should say being excited to spend uh, and add to the team and, and make fans happy versus like, you know, cold, hard bottom line stuff. Also the Phillies like used to be that team, but they're kind of set with the roster. Now they paid Aaron Nola. So they did their spending there to retain him. But uh, you know, I think the teams that might've pressed the market before, you know, there was a talk about uh, Chris Bryant uh, ruining his contract with the Rockies. And that was kind of like another one of those, Scott Boris clients with like a history that was like 
kind of spotty, at least health-wise and availability and just like how good he could be at a, in a given month. And then signing a big seven-year deal with the, the Rockies who were not ready to compete and will not be ready to compete maybe for the entirety of his contract. Uh, you know, I think that you know, is a little bit of a cautionary tale uh, just uh, for teams that aren't ready to spend that kind of money, like overcommitting. So yeah, the players were weird. Uh, I think like the Dodgers going all out for Otani and Yamamoto and like spending big money that way. And so that took them out of it because they signed the guys they wanted to sign uh, and didn't really have to go into the uncertain free agency waters. They, they got the ones everybody identified as like the number one position player and number one pitcher. Uh, so I think with those three teams out and the Red Sox just not doing anything, you know, I guess the Red Sox would have been another team typically playing for these kind of free agents. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not doing anything. <laughs> big. Not doing anything big. Uh, yeah, a contract that the White Sox, you know, the White Sox could have signed Lucas Giolito the contract. They Like when everybody said the Osmani Grandal contract, like, wow, the White Sox are spending. Like they could have slid that contract into any one of their payrolls over the previous 10 years. And same thing like with Giolito, it's like, you know, that, that kind of contract versus one where it's like, Oh, they're really stretching themselves and the Red Sox are not stretching themselves in any way. Uh, the Astros also are being a little bit uh, coy with like how much they want to spend. And uh, Kike Hernandez uh, talked around it or like mentioned like collusion or alluded to it with a capital C based on like the identical looking offers he's getting with similar timing. And just it's, you know, it's either the algorithms are very good and all the teams around the league are like using them to reach the same valuation. Or, you know, there is a little bit of just like, eh, we have this Bally sports uncertainty we're all dealing with. We can all defend spending less. So let's take this moment to like, uh, after Steve Cohen and Peter Seidler and John Middleton supercharged the market to like pull back a little bit and get uh, spending under control. Like, yeah, can't rule that out either, even though like I think there are more player centric arguments you can probably make to explain the year. Well, we'll see if Snell and Montgomery sign this week, but Matt Chapman is off the board following Cody Bellinger short term deal with the San Francisco Giants and it sounds like the Toronto Blue Jays offered over a $100 million contract extension to Chapman before free agency began, and I'm sure he's got a little regret not accepting that deal. He left a lot of money on the table, or maybe he just doesn't like Canada. Maybe that's the case, too. Who knows? But now, Matt Chapman is in San Francisco. That will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. And again, thank you to Brendan Moore for joining in this podcast episode to share his insights about what is happening down in Springfield and what the politicians are talking about with the White Sox proposal. You can follow us on social media or on all the social media platforms. We're at Sox Machine. You can follow James on Twitter at JR Fegan, and you can follow me at Sox Machine underscore Josh. If you enjoy our podcast and you want to subscribe to it, you can subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. And we also do videos. You can check them out at youtube.com slash Machine. If you enjoy our work and you want more, you can get more by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash machine to gain full access to all of our White Sox coverage. It's just $5 a month, but we do have other tiers as well that give you additional benefits. You can check them out at patreon.com slash machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. 
alongside Jim Margulis and James Fegan. I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching.